This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone, on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. Well, first oil isn't expected for another five years, but work is well underway on Beta Nord, Equinor's deepwater offshore oil development. The future of the project was fraught with uncertainty amid rumors of political infighting over whether or not Ottawa should actually give it the environmental go-ahead. It could be the last major offshore oil project approved for Newfoundland and Labrador. So while efforts continue to move away, from non-renewable fuels. Workers in this province are hoping to make the most of it while it lasts. My guest today on On Target is Executive Director of Trades NL, Darren King. Hello. 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 (laughs) Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So, Bade Nord, it, we were all, you know, biting our nails this time last year. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the the project, its scope, and, and the kind of work involved there. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, the Bade Nord project is, uh, is certainly very exciting. So there's a number of components to the project, Linda. There's uh, the construction, of course, of the hall itself, which is, in layman's terms, what some would call the boat, um, which is a, a very, very big vessel along the lines of the uh, the Terra Nova, only I think much bigger. Um, so there, there's the construction of the hall is the first part. And then there's, uh, in our industry, what we would call the top sides, which is all of the components that go actually onto the top of the hall. So you've got a, the processing modules and the living quarters and the helideck and, and the flare boom and, and a whole other a host of other parts. Uh, and then from that, of course, you, you have what we call commissioning and mating, which is really kind of putting all the pieces together once the construction is done and uh, and preparing the vessel to do sea trials and make sure everything is working before it actually goes offshore to start producing oil. So it's uh, it's an exciting project. Uh, and in, in addition, by the way, something uh, I won't say brand new to us, but something relatively new is that there's going to be a, a significant amount of, of subsea work required for this vessel. So there's a uh, uh, lots of chatter around a lot of subsea work being done here uh, over the next uh, eight or so years once the project is sanctioned. So it's certainly very exciting times for sure. It's a, it's a huge project. The, uh, the the estimates now are somewhere near, I think, a billion barrels of oil. And initially when the project was talked about and announced, it was around 300 billion barrels of oil. So, you know, it's certainly grown in size and magnitude. Uh, and, and as a result of that growth, of course, the implications and positive impacts that it can have on our province are just tremendous. So what are the timelines right now? Well, as far as I understand it right now, negotiations and discussions are ongoing with government. Uh, Minister Parsons office, I think, in particular, leading this file. So with government and Equinor to develop a benefits agreement. And as you would know, the benefits agreement will really uh, be a key document in highlighting and describing the benefits to be accrued to the province from this project. And so that will include everything from the amount and types of construction work that we can expect to be completed here. 
uh, and and what involvement the province and the local workforce will have in, in any part, if any, or all of it, all of the, in the construction and the subsea work. Uh, and the benefits agreement, of course, also will contain information around the, the types of royalties that uh, the province will expect to accrue once the project's actually up and running. So right now, the, the benefits discussions are ongoing. Um, you know, our understanding from Equinor is that they're looking for a, an official sanction date probably in the calendar year 2020. 24, um, but you know, reality is that a lot of the work has already started, and engineering firms and others have been engaged. So there's there's actually lots of work happening on the Beta Nord project now, on a from a planning and organizing uh, level, shall we say? Uh, I think the you know the, the benefits agreement is going to be the key trigger before you see any actual construction work start. And how long is that process normally? And I, I would imagine you're involved in that. Well, the uh, you mean the construction phase itself? No, the um, um, the benefits agreement. Oh, sorry. Um, so, I mean, it really depends, uh, I guess, on you know how quickly you can, they can come to terms. No, we're not involved at all. Uh, that's a that's a discussion that's totally between the province on behalf of the province, you know, the residents of the province and Equinor. Um, we you know, we have been engaged. Uh, you know, we've met with the premier and the minister several times. Uh, we talked to the, the minister pretty regularly, and you know, I have to say they've been certainly very supportive and uh, and very open with us around the, the discussions and what's happening. But uh, you know, it's it's very much a discussion between the proponent Equinor and government right now. Um, but we, you know, we've we've been conducting, um, I'll call it an awareness tour um, uh, over the last three months or so, meeting with community groups and others to kind of make sure people understand fully what the implications of the project are for the province. You know, should we do a lot of construction work here or should we not? And, you know, we're, we're very concerned about that, to be quite frank, because everything that we're hearing is, is that uh, Equinor at least initially, is interested in doing subsea work here and constructing the entire of the FPSO elsewhere, out of not only out of province but out of country, um, which you know effectively means that subsea work would be done here is great. We think that's very positive, but it has a very minimal impact on local construction work. It's it's not a lot of construction jobs involved in that, uh, whereas the FPSO, as we did with the CROs and Terra Nova, when they were both, I think, 70% and 90% respectively constructed in a province, you, you know, you literally saw thousands of jobs created over a, a two or three year period and sites like Bull Arm and Pora Basque and Marystown and fabrication shops. I mean, everybody was busy during that period of time. So we know we're certainly very actively engaged because we're really concerned with the uh, the position that we hear Equinor has been taking to date. So your role is uh, primarily advocacy because you represent uh, the workforce here. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what you would like to see happen here when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is Executive Director of Trades NL, Darren King. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Our guest today is Executive Director of Trades NL, Darren King, and we're talking about Bade Nord, the Bade Nord project. Um, and uh, Darren, obviously, you'd like to see as much work done here as possible. What work can or should be done here? Well, uh, yeah, our, so our position is, uh, has been fairly clear, Linda. You know, as we've done in the past, you know, we, we believe that everything, you know, other than the hall can and should be done here. So the, the hall is just much too big. Um, all of us here in the province acknowledge that we don't have the facility in place anywhere in the province today with the capability of building the hall the size it is. 
but the remainder of the components required for the top size of the FPSO are, uh, other than being larger, they're similar to what we did on the Terra Nova and the CROs here in, with the local workforce in the province. So our position is that all of that work and the subsea work should be completed here in the province. You know, we, we certainly understand there's obviously negotiations around that with government through the benefits agreement, and we accept that. But uh, but that's our position. You know, we've done that work over the years. We have a, a workforce here that's demonstrated their ability to get work done on time and, and to do good quality work. Uh, and we see no reason why it needs to go elsewhere. And, and you know, I, o- I only point to the current um, – I'm not sure what to call it, but with the Terra Nova FPSO, you know, we, we – Government invested hundreds of millions of dollars to get that vessel refitted and back uh, producing oil and uh, all of the work, except for uh, a month or so with 25 or 30 people here. All of that work has gone to Spain. And today, uh, you know, I'm aware for certain because I know people over there, I'm aware that that project is, is over budget, it's over time, and they've had to reach back here to Newfoundland looking for skilled trades workers to come over and fix issues that they couldn't, they didn't have the capability of doing over there. So, you know, it, it just boggles the mind why people often think that doing it outside of the province or the country seems to make it better. When in fact, you know, we, we've got testimonials from major players, you know, from outside the country who've done work here in, in Newfoundland land in Labrador and attest to the quality of work and the safety of the work environment that they see when they come here with the Newfoundland workforce. What sort of factors uh, come into play in, in helping a company like Equinor decide where to do their work, whether it be take it outside the province or do it here? Uh, how, in other words, how would work here benefit the company? Well, uh, you know, I, I guess the short answer would be that the company probably needs to speak to that themselves. But, uh, you know, from, from my armchair looking at it, I, I would imagine that their decision is is going to be driven in large part, similar to Suncor and others, is profit. You know, where they can do it the cheapest and make the most money is likely what's going to drive them to make a decision. Now, I, I suspect as well factoring into that, uh, you know, if they can do a vessel all in one place versus having different components spread out over three or four areas, uh, that probably reduces some of their risk to the project. So that, you know, that would obviously be a key factor. And they have partners uh, in the project, so their partners will likely have a view on that as well. Uh, but, you know, as I've said before, like that will be their position. Uh, you know, our position is that, that the province and the people in the province own the resource. It's our resource, and, and it's up to our government to show leadership on how we develop the resource. And, you know, it's our view here at Trades NL and the 15 or 16,000 people that we have in our respective jurisdiction is our view that, that we shouldn't proceed with a project that sees an, 100% of the construction of that project done elsewhere. It's just, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And uh, you know, as I said, I, I don't want to keep flipping back, Linda. But you know, I, you know, I mentioned the Terra Nova as an example that uh, you would be aware because it was a big issue where they needed government subsidies in order to put that vessel back online, and 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 government made that happen to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And it, it's only the last quarter, I believe, of 22 that Suncor posted record profits. So those profits are coming off the backs of the taxpayers here in the province. So I I just don't see, um, you know, I understand and respect the position of Equinor, but I don't see any any company with a good conscience, like I know Equinor has, based on their track record in Norway, I don't see anyone coming in here and expecting to take our resource and simply go away and provide all of the local benefits that comes from the construction to provide that to another community in another country somewhere else. What kind of capacity have we got here in terms of uh, the workforce and uh, and the manufacturing facility? 
Well, we've, we've got a piece of work completed ourselves, and uh, it's a good question you asked because I've just recently been engaged with a number of people, and, and it's one of the things I'm going to have a chat with the minister about. You know, if, the, if government hasn't done this, which I don't believe they have, I'd like to see government have an independent assessment done. But we've done our own work, uh, and we can tell you the workforce capacity for sure because we've, we've got the, the numbers here, uh, and we've got lots of capacity to supply the trades required to complete that work. No issue there. Um, and, you know, as I said, based on past experiences, you know, we've got two huge facilities here in the province in in uh, Bull Arm and the Marystown Cowhead facility that have both played major roles in, in the construction of FPSOs in the past, as well in in, in Minister Parsons' own district in Port of Bass. There's a huge fabrication facility that's been used uh, in the past, I believe, to do a piece of the living quarters, but I'm not completely sure. Um, and then we've got, you know, for, on the subsea side, I mean, we've got, we got tremendous fabrication shops here. There's there's probably three or four for sure in the city that I'm aware of and, and probably a number of others across the province. So that provides the opportunity not only to get the work done, but to spread the work around the province and spread the benefits that accrue around to more communities throughout uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Our guest today on On Target is the Executive Director of Trades NL, Darren King. We're talking about the Terra Nova, not Terra Nova, oh my goodness, Baden Nord with Equinor. Um, is Equinor a, a good company to deal with? Have you had dealings with the company? Yeah, yeah, we've had meetings with the with the local office here numerous times, for sure, and, and they've been certainly respectful. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I, I understand the company's position through the process. I mean, they're not going to share a lot with us. They see us having a vested interest, and and right now their decision making is is at a little higher level. So I, I understand that. Um, their and their dealings are primarily with government. But you know, from what what we see from a distance, looking at how Equinor is operating in Norway. I mean, to me, they're a model company, to be frank with you. Um, and I use the, the example of the Joanne Kasberg, and I'm not sure about the pronunciation, but that's a, a, an FPSO recently um, commissioned by Equinor. And it's a very similar circumstance to here where the, the hull was constructed uh, outside of Norway. And once the hull was done, it, it was transported back to Norway for Norwegians to accrue local benefits on the construction and topside work and commissioning and mating. Uh, and, and I applaud them for that because, you know, they're doing everything they can to keep as much of the work as they possibly can in Norway for their local constituents. And I think that's the right thing to do. That's all we're asking here for the province is if you're going to come in here and develop our project, develop it the same way as you would in Norway. Do the haul outside, fair enough, but the rest of the work that can be done here should be done here. We've seen how quickly uh, the the world economy has changed and shifted and supply chains and all of those things since the pandemic. And, and it seems to be solidifying now, if you know what I mean. Uh, the, the global workplace is not quite the same as what it once was. Do you think that that may um, bode well for us in some ways? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's certainly got its pros and cons. <clears throat> Excuse me, there's no there's no doubt about that. But we are very much into a, a global workplace. That that's for sure. Um, but you know, our again, our position on on a lot of those things hasn't changed over the last seven or eight years. I mean, we have what we believe is a global workforce here. Anyway, the nature of our organization in the building trades is that our members typically travel from project to project all over the world. 
Today, as we speak, we've got, uh, I'm guessing, somewhere around three to 4,000 members spread across Canada and a small number down in the United States now working on maintenance projects and new construction port projects in British Columbia and Ontario, doing maintenance work in Alberta and the oil sands. Uh, so, you know, we, we have... Uh, members that travel all the time for work and and this still continues to be their home base and as you would expect they're just waiting for a project like beta nord so they can get back home and go back to work uh, but there's no question the 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 whole work environment is changing globally and you know on many fronts i think newfoundland and labrador and uh, and all of our workforce not only construction but in the tech sector and in others we're well positioned we've got great talent here and and we take second seat to none as far as i'm concerned our guest today on On Target is Executive Director of Trades NL, Darren King. We'll be back right after this. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Our guest on On Target today is Executive Director of Trades NL, Darren King. We're talking about the Beta Nord project. And uh, Darren, what is the, the, the real potential there? In other words, best case scenario, how many workers could that site employ? Or that project, I should say, employ? So, so on the, the uh, top sides itself, we, we haven't seen any numbers from uh, Equinor at this point, but, uh, you know, they base it on past experiences with the Terra Nova and the, the Sea Rose. I mean, you know, you, you could be looking at a, a combined anywhere from, say, 1,500 to 2,500 construction jobs. Uh, that you know that potentially could be spread over multiple sites. It could be Bull Arm and Marystown, maybe Port of Basque or others. Uh, but you know, certainly when we did the uh, the, F, the Terra Nova FPSO, there was you know there was probably around fifteen hundred, I think, or sixteen at one point. Uh, and this vessel is a little bigger, so it's it's, it's hard to tell. But uh, you know, based on past numbers, you're you're probably looking at somewhere in that area. On the subsea work, uh, we have some some numbers provided to us, not firm numbers, but, uh, you know, we're told that there'd be somewhere in the area, I think, of 900 or so jobs created over an eight-year period. Um, as I said before, that's a little less labor-intensive than the topside work. Um, but, you know, what it would mean, though, is that, you know, a lot of local fabrication and welding shops would have an opportunity to get in on a piece of the construction work that they may not normally have have had uh, if there had not been subsea work. So, uh, you know, combined, you're looking at lots of employment, but also lots of spin-off opportunities for uh, for smaller uh, fabricators and constructors here in the province who may not have gotten an opportunity otherwise. So, you know, it just it offers a you know a, a really good opportunity for a lot of people to uh, see some local benefits from this project. Well, I was, and I was going to ask you, what, so what would um, what kind of benefit would the local economy see from more work happening here? So the benefit, I mean, you know, it's pretty, pretty tremendous. We, we've got some data collected on some of our past resource development projects where the impact on the local economy can any, be anywhere from 6 to $14 billion, depending on the size of the project. But, you know, in, in direct layman's terms, I mean, what we're talking here, first of all, is we're talking about direct employment for local Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. 
Uh, and then the spin-off that comes from that, of course, is you've got the supply and service sector, uh, contractors who've got to uh, either maintain jobs or hire. The spin-off ratio, by the way, in construction ranges, but generally probably five to one, which means every direct construction job created, there's about five more created or maintained in the industry to support that job. So you're talking about a lot of spin-off jobs in addition to the direct construction jobs. And then you've got the, you know, the, the traditional things that we see as a result of uh, huge construction. You've got money going back into communities, large and small. That in turn means that local grocery stores and you know hardware stores and building supplies and car dealers and all those things uh, benefit and charities. Uh, we you know we've here alone and lots of people donate like we do, but in our organization alone, we've given just about thirty million dollars now over the last twenty five years or so to charities here in the province, particularly healthcare. Um, and all, you know, all of that is a result of being able to go to work on these projects and uh, and put money aside to give back to the communities. $30 million. That's money you might never see generated otherwise for, for local charities. It, it is. Uh, you know, and we're very proud that we've done that, Linda. And, you know, we made some, some sizable investments in infrastructure, like the uh, Rainbow Riders facility, for example, was one. Um, the Autism Society is another that, you know, we gave significant amounts of money there. Um, the other one that we put a lot of money into was the, the refit of the emergency rooms over at the Health Science Center. Uh, and Paul Snow could talk to you in detail about, you know, what we've done to help support them. So, yeah, you know, it makes a big difference, and, and we've been conscious of it. You know, we still give some smaller donations now. It, it's tight times right now, but uh, we've got some money put aside for smaller donations. But, you know, when, when we're working on big projects, you know, we like to give back to the community, and we like to give back to schools and to charitable organizations, as we've been doing. But, yeah, you know, when you talk about $30 million, that's a, that's a pretty significant amount of money to come into an economy in the size of Newfoundland and Labrador. So talks underway for a benefits agreement. How soon, realistically, or best-case scenario, might we see some work starting to happen on the ground? Well, my guess is we're probably at least 12 months away. It's uh, 12 months away once the benefits agreement is signed. And, you know, my best guess, again, is that the benefits agreement discussions um, are likely going to be in a critical stage over the next four to six weeks or so. You know, I, I think government is anxious as you would expect, to get a benefits agreement done so the project can move forward. And I think the company is in the same frame of mind. So, you know, my guess is they're going to try and uh, get that done over the next four to six weeks, which then allows Equinor, assuming they get it done, allows Equinor to move forward with a number of other plans that they have in terms of expressions of interest and tenders and stuff that they want to get out to companies to keep this process moving. But I, I think you're at least probably 12 months or so away from construction once the benefits agreement gets signed. We've heard the mantra over the years. I don't need to tell you because you've been in the political realm as well. But, um, you know, the mantra we've heard over the years is, you know, um, no more giveaways. And and we've given too much. Are you confident that uh, this government will uh, drive a hard, hard uh, deal here and, and try to make sure Newfoundland and Labrador gets the very maximum from this benefits agreement? I, I am. Um, you know, we've had a, as I said before, we've had a great relationship with Premier Fury and, uh, and Minister Parsons, and and we talk regularly. And you know, they're only a call away if, or a, or a text away if we need them. And and so you know, we're very thankful for that. But you know, 
we were in to see them before Christmas, and I've talked to Minister Patterson's not long ago, actually, and, and, you know, we know the positions that they're taking at this point in time, and, you know, I think that uh, there's some challenges there between where government is and where Equinor is, and that's fine. They'll, they'll work through that. But, you know, every indication that we have right now is that uh, they're, they're taking a pretty strong stand that the company has to come with some pretty significant local benefits for the province before they're prepared to sign off on the benefits agreement. So, uh, yeah, I am, you know, I am confident of where government is. Um, to be honest, my bigger concern is, and I've learned this over the last three months, is that uh, there's a general lack of understanding, probably because of lack of information, but a lack of understanding amongst the public about what's happening with this project and where it is. I, I think lots of people are just assuming this is done once the federal government signed off on the environmental review. I think most people assume this is done and they've moved on. So, you know, we're concerned and we're working hard to, to sort of make people aware and get people engaged in this because, you know, if you're going to expect government to bargain tough, uh, government needs to know that the people of the province have their back. So we're, you know, we're doing what we can to uh, have people reach out to government and let them know where they stand on this issue that, so that government has a not only a solid position, but they understand that the position they're taking is supported by the people of the province as well. Beta Nord is, is one project. Uh, what else is being worked on here now and, and anything on the horizon? Yeah, it's actually pretty exciting times in the, uh, excuse me, in the industry. As you know, the Beta Nord is one. Um, the white rose in Argentia is uh, starting to ramp up and now. We'll we'll going to ramp up, I suspect, to somewhere near of fifteen or sixteen hundred people over the next uh, five or six weeks. Um, we've got our, some of our own staff rehired and on site out there, so that, that's pretty exciting. There's going to be lots to get done there to finish that project and bring it over the finish line. Um, the wind hydrogen is. Uh, pretty exciting as well and um, we've been talking to a number of uh, proponents there and uh, most of what i can share with you is public knowledge anyway but there's you know there's there's many many looking but uh, world energy gh2 on the west coast is uh, certainly uh, pretty aggressive uh, there's a number uh, pitching down the bjorn peninsula there's a proponent out in argentia uh, there's several in the comma chance uh, area so we we've been talking to lots of these people and you know my guess is not every project's going to go but there's a great opportunity and great possibility that you'll probably see three or four of those projects go there's there's some good financial backing there uh, and some really good organizations at least from the meetings that we've attended around uh, uh, labor agreements and stuff like that so that's all pretty exciting but you know there, there's also still lots of great things happening in our traditional industries like our mining um, I mean, IOC, we're up there today with, um, I think, somewhere around 450 or 500 people doing a major uh, piece of maintenance work. I mean, they, they're continuing to do very well and, and to produce very well. Uh, Takora Mines as well up in Wabush is doing extremely well and, and continuing to gain ground. Uh, Boise Bay Mind, we've got, uh, I think, around five or 600 people up there working on the expansion of that project. And that's, you know, that's not even in consideration of all of the new projects that are that are out there and uh, potential projects in the mining sector in Labrador. And then, of course, there's Marathon Gold here on the island that's uh, very much in its infancy phase, but uh, but very much moving forward and, and seems to be doing very well in their discoveries out there. So, you know, there's lots of lots of really positive things happening on the resource development sector in the province. I, you know, I think it's, uh, it provides lots of optimism for the future here for the uh, for not only the resource industry, but for those involved in the skilled trades and and, and other industries that support that. I think there's lots of opportunity for careers here and uh, for a great future. 
Do we have the, the capacity to build components for some of these big uh, towers, uh, turbines for wind energy? I mean, these things are massive. Uh, do we have the capacity to do that here now? We do, we do have the capacity for sure. Yeah, there's no question about that. Um, I, you know, and, I, and I've been asked that question before, and, and uh, what I've always said to people is, look, you know, if you want to know our capacity in terms of our ability to do it, then you need to look no further than a project like Muskrat Falls. And, and I don't mean the politics of Muskrat Falls, but if you look at what was done up there, I mean, that is a marvel on the, on the, of a project on the world stage, uh, what was constructed there. And, and that was done by local craft workers here. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't think there's any, any question of our ability to do the work that's required, the technical work. Uh, you know, my guess is, though, Linda, what you'll see with the wind hydrogen is, is that there are going to be some components simply because of the nature of that industry that will be built and brought in. And there'll be some assembly and a combination of some assembly here and also some raw, pure construction done here. And on the windmills, by the way, just uh, people sometimes forget this, but uh, our, you know, our local workforce here in the province have done a number of windmills. Uh, Ramia is one place, for example. Down St. Lawrence, there's another uh, eight or nine windmills. So it's not new to us to do windmills. I guess the, it's just the wind hydrogen aspect of it is what's new to us. Our guest today on On Target is the Executive Director of Trades NL, Darren King. We'll be back right after this. Our guest today is the Executive Director of Trades NL, Darren King. And Darren, there, there's been a lot of talk of late about a just transition for workers normally employed in non-renewable industries. The federal government has introduced a just transition bill, but the Premier of Alberta has already pledged that she's going to fight it. She indicates she's not going to be shutting down the oil and gas industry, but any slowdown or shutdown of the industry may not be reliant on any one political decision. The transition, as we keep hearing, is already underway and many oil companies are having trouble getting the financing they need for oil and gas development. Does government have a role to play to ensure a just, just transition to ensure that workers are not left by the wayside? Yeah, I, I mean, I think 100% uh, yes will be the answer to that question for sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, you had, to, you had to keep in mind that that the industry, once it, it developed, or once it started many, many years ago, it grew and developed because of, uh, you know, investments by companies and owners and proponents and investments by workers to go out and get training and to, to get jobs and secure futures for their families. So, you, you know, if government is going to make the decision to to enact just transition and, and start to move towards a green economy, which I support, by the way, personally. I, I'm not challenging that whatsoever. But if government's going to make a decision like that that will have an impact on the industry, then I think government has a full responsibility to step up and assist those in the industry who are going to be negatively impacted. Uh, and, you know, we're at this point in time, we're seeing that. Um, you know, we, we as an organization fully support the degree move towards a green economy. Um, we do, however, believe that that oil coming from Newfoundland and Labrador does not have to go away today or tomorrow. Uh, that there's a future there for it, uh, until uh, if and until at least uh, you know others start to slow down and stop producing. We don't believe that Newfoundland and Labrador needs to be the world leader in shutting down the oil industry. Um, and the product that's coming out of 
our uh, out of our oil industry here, as we're told at least, is uh, is much better and much cleaner than uh, many other parts of the world. So you know, until until Canada and others don't need to rely on oil, we still think there's going to be a place for our industry. But to your point, yes, um, you know, we've got many members that will be affected as well by a just transition, and we we do think there's a role for government. And to date, uh, you know, we've had a number of discussions with Minister O'Regan on this, and. Uh, he announced just before Christmas a review of uh, what's going to be required in the construction industry and other areas to help workers adjust. So, you know, we're fully cooperating. I look forward to participating in that process. But there's definitely a role for government. Uh, you know, anytime they bring in a policy that has a, a negative impact on the public, then it's also their responsibility to try and mitigate the uh, negative downturn for the people affected. What should a just transition plan look like? What sort of components should it include? Well, you know that's a that's a good question, and uh, and lots of people have differed more uh, into this than I am to give you a good answer. But you know, again, from an armchair perspective, at a distance, you know, I think there's got to be a couple of components to it. You know, one I think is that there has to be a clear. Uh, understood and acknowledged plan of where the country is is heading, in particular the country and the province over the next say, 25 to 35 years, because you know this is not a short-term issue. This is a long-term issue. So there has to be a clear plan, so that people understand what we're into. And then within the plan, I think there has to be uh, components built in to reassure the public and those with vested interests that there will be supports to help them through the transition. So. Uh, you know, a just transition, for example, in construction, uh, for members that we have who are, you know, perhaps 60 years old or older, it may not even impact them because many of them will probably likely do the White Rose Project and hopefully Beta Nord and they'll take them to retirement. But we've got lots of people who've just entered the skilled trades over the last five or six or seven or eight years. And, you know, a career for them is very much going to be impacted if the traditional resource development like oil, as we know, it disappears. So I think there has to be a, a clear plan of where we're headed, a clear plan of what supports are going to be available. And, and government has to take the lead on some of those supports to make sure people understand uh, what's going to be required of their skill set. Um, and where they can go to get the assistance. And, you know, in, in our particular case, many of our union halls do their own training. So, uh, you know, we're, we're eager to see what the just transition means, and we're eager to see what kind of new skill sets will be required. And most of our uh, halls and our training centers are ready on a moment's notice to kind of offer new training and make sure our members are fully equipped to take on these new challenges. You sort of have to be ahead of the curve, don't you? Are there any um, questions, I, I suppose, about the, the skill set uh, and where the demand will be in the next decade or so? Well, there hasn't been too many things raised yet with us around that. Um, you know, it's, it's likely for sure, based on what we're seeing with the wind and hydrogen, it's, it's very likely for sure that you're going to see a pretty strong emphasis on the mechanical skill set, uh, you know, the, the electrical skill set, mechanic, mechanical kinds of trades uh, versus, uh, say, the civil trades. And that's not to say that there won't be a requirement for all, but, you know, when you think about the components of uh, hydrogen plants and turbines, you know, there's very much a, a heavy presence of mechanical work there. But, uh, you know, generally, I think you can rest assured that the, the membership in the skilled trades generally, not only our organization, but there are non-union workers out there as well, that uh, most skilled trades workers uh, have the base skill sets that are required, you know, to transition from, a, will say, oil construction over to wind and hydrogen construction. Uh, I, I think, you know, where the real key is, is identifying what types of new construction techniques might be required and therefore 
uh, upskilling to make sure that, that the seasoned construction workers who haven't done that before are brought up to speed on um, what the new techniques are and what they need to do and provided opportunities to learn to not only learn the skills, but to practice them. Uh, skilled trace workers, of course, very mobile, and their uh, their skills are demand in demand everywhere. Um, have we lost many workers to other jurisdictions, or are we gaining uh, workers from other jurisdictions? Well, the answer is to both is, a, is yes, a little bit of yes. We, we've we've got some uh, immigrant workers that that uh, we've taken into a number of our union halls. Uh, just a couple of days ago, actually, there was uh, two Ukrainian individuals who went in, got taken in with one of our uh, union halls, and they're doing some up- upgrading for their certification so that they can they can uh, do the test here, the apprenticeship board test here in the province. Um, we've we haven't I don't know that we've lost too many permanent workers. Uh, we, we've lost lots of workers in the short term who still reside here but are gone to work elsewhere for sure. Because as you said, that that's the nature of our industry generally. They migrate to where the work is and then they come back home when they're finished. Um, so I don't think we lost them permanently. Uh, you know I think as soon as work starts to pick up here, you will see most of our our traditional permanent residents return here uh, to go to work. But yeah, we you know we've definitely seen uh, lots of immigrants and. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, Linda, you know, we're in pretty good shape now. But but I just say to you, like, there's going to be a challenge over the next seven or eight years. Uh, the projections are that there's going to be a pretty big uh, retirement uh, impact on the trades here and not so many at this point in time coming into the trades. So we're we're actually now focused a bit on attracting people to the trades and trying to, um, you know, regenerate more interest and, and uh, bring more awareness to what a career in the skilled trades would mean and the positive impact it can have on your life. You just made reference to it there, but uh, many people entering the skilled trades now compared to, let's say, a few years ago. No, the numbers. I mean, there's still there's still regular entrants, but the numbers are down pretty significantly. The last numbers I saw, I think, showed something like a 20 percent decline of new apprentices over the past couple of years. You now, we you know we we acknowledge that COVID would have played an impact on that as well, but you know at the same time it is still concerning. So we're you know we're having lots of discussions with the construction association and with uh, the apprenticeship division in government, and we're actually working towards a number of initiatives now to do a, a promotional campaign around the skilled trades. But it, it is concerning for sure. Um, because, you know, it's like the old catch-22. If, if, if we don't maintain our level of skilled trades workers, then we give opportunities for companies like Equinor and others to say, well, we can't do work there because you don't have skilled trades. So uh, we got, you know, we got to make sure we maintain the, the workforce that we have and make sure that we're able to fill the vacancies created with retirements. Any other changes or trends developing that we may not be aware of? I mean, nothing outside of what we've talked about, you know, uh, I mean, there's always little changes in construction techniques and uh, and our union halls embrace that and training centers, they're regularly training up the members. But I, I think, you know, you've really hit on the major change, which is the, the whole issue of moving towards a green economy and the the reskilling of the trades workers. I think that's really the, the biggest change that we're facing down the road. Darren, we've got uh, just uh, two minutes left. Um, we started the conversation with Baden Nord. Any final thoughts? Sure. Yeah. I, like I, I'll just uh, will say to you that we're actually. Uh, I guess I'm going to do it now. We're, we're launching a, a new campaign, a small campaign called "Build Right Here," around the Baden Nord project. You will start to see uh, some advertisements. POCM is going to be doing some things for us and others. Um, but the, the whole notion is that uh, we want to build a project, we want to build it right, and we want to build it right here in Newfoundland and Labrador. 
Um, so it's called Build Right Here. Um, we'll be doing some advertising and some videos, some social media, engaging with the public, uh, and really, again, trying to build build a profile for the project and what it means to the province and hopefully engage people because you know as i said before you know there, there's two things that i see that are, are are very blatantly obvious here one is that i think equinor is a very good company they got a very good track record of doing projects in their own territory uh, and number two that that the province has to stand firm and make sure that the maximum benefits for this project are accrued to the province because if you don't there's a couple of things linda one is it's not only the jobs lost on the beta nord project but it's also a lost opportunity for us to continue to hone and train our skilled trades workers and have them ready for the next green energy projects that come along and if if we don't do this project we'll continue to lose more workers and we'll basically be setting ourselves up for very little construction on any future projects so this you know in my view this is a very very critical time but equinor is a very good partner um, so i'm just hoping that they they have a good assessment of the landscape here in the province and and the political beliefs that people had and 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 that we're not going to stand for anything less than what we we believe we deserve and uh, ought to get here Darren King is the executive director of Trades NL. You're going to be hearing a lot more about uh, Build right here in the uh, coming weeks ahead. Um, I really appreciate your time today, Darren. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Linda. You have a great one. You too. And we'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening.